You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to be here with you. If you are new, if this is your first time with us, or even if you've been around for a little while and you just feel kind of new, on behalf of the pastors and members, I want to especially welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. Um, right in front of you, in the back of the chair, or like right, I guess it's either, you can either reach right in front of you or you can reach right behind you. Um, and so there's a little pocket there in the back of the chair and you'll see a connect card in there with a pencil. So if you if you don't mind, take like, 15 seconds to take that, fill it out. You can leave it in your seat and we'll come and collect it. I promise we won't show up at your house. Uh, we're not going to like, you know, harass you or anything like that, but that gives us a record of your visit. Uh, your presence here really does matter to us. We want to value that and we, we want to, uh, respect and honor that. So, um, also it just helps us know how to love you and serve you to the best of our abilities in ways that particularly matter to you. So if that's you, uh, do us a favor, take like 15 seconds and fill that out. Um, so good to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Philippians chapter four as we jump back into our series, uh, our practicing series this spring that we have titled Abundant Simplicity. Um, if you're new to our church, the Crossing Church is built around this really simple biblical idea that we are practicing the way of Jesus together in Northeast Arkansas. And so uh, following Jesus is is not just about a set of uh, doctrinal statements that you agree to or a list of do's and don'ts that you behave around, uh, but it's actually the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It, it requires a practice. So we, we want to take up and, and, and embody and follow the rhythms and practices from the life of Jesus himself. So um, to that end, two or three times a year, we take a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus. We teach on it here, and then we work it out and we practice it together in the context of a missional community. And a few weeks ago, we kicked off a new series on the, the ancient practice known as Simplicity. We took a break for Easter, and now for the next couple of weeks, we are jumping back into it. So Philippians chapter 4 is where we are. If you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can get all of the notes from today's teaching there, and you can follow along there if you'd like. Um, before we jump into this text, I would love to just pray for us one more time. So would you pray for me? I'll pray for you, and let's just go to the Father uh, and pray together. So, Father, thank you so much uh, for Jesus, for tearing the veil into and for giving us access to you, for bringing us into your presence, um, the forgiveness that we have, the adoption into your love. None of those things are, are, are things that um, are products of human ingenuity. They're, they're not things that we somehow uh, did on our own strength. So I just take a moment just to praise you for your grace. And I pray right now that you would, um, as your word is opened, you would um, put a spotlight on Jesus, get it off of me, uh, get it off of ourselves. All of us come in here a little bit self-focused and distracted, probably. I know I do. So I just pray that you would get the focus off of self and put it on Jesus and that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see him for who he really is, as the, um, the all-satisfying object of our heart's deepest desires. And I just pray... Um, that you would do your thing, 
like that you would you would you would make Jesus shine as he does and help us to fall in love with him because he's loved us first and um, I just pray those things in in Jesus name for his glory and for our good and our joy and all of God's people said amen amen to that Um, well take a look at this stud on the screen here Um, that is a picture of me in the sixth grade on my new Harley. Uh, so I thought and pretended that's a Honda, actually not a Harley moped, not a motorcycle. For those of you that can't tell, if you look, um, sure. um, Of course you can tell it's a moped. Uh, when, if you look closely enough, it's black with a little pink trim. So it's got a nice early nineties, uh, vibe to it there. Let me just give you the story, the backstory behind this. I don't think up until at this point in my life, there's nothing I had desired more, longed for more, wanted more than that moped. Why? Uh, because Kendall Raspberry had a moped. So um, Kendall was the older, cooler guy on my street, and he rocked a moped. Um, and like the Sting haircut from the wrestler Sting, if you remember. So... Uh, yeah, like a, like a blonde with a little rat tail and like a kind of a flat top on the top. I mean, this dude was, I mean, all the guys wanted to be Kendall and all the ladies wanted to be with him. And so as the, as a younger guy, I was like, man, my life would be awesome. I mean, one plus one equals two. I can do math here. So, um, if I, uh, you know, get a moped, my life would be great. I need a moped. So what I did was what any sixth grader would do. And I began to kind of you know, pester my parents and grandparents to death about this. If you have kids, you're familiar with that thing that kids do. Um, and so uh, to my surprise, they gave in. So here I am on my brand new moped. And uh, when I brought this thing home, it's no exaggeration to say that it's like all my greatest dreams came true. Uh, I was popular. Everybody wanted to go for a spin. Um, I even landed a girlfriend. Bam. So... Um, <clears throat> that's Mandy. Uh, she took one look at my stonewashed jeans, my scooter, and the pair of Shaquille O'Neal's on my feet, and the poor girl didn't know what to do with herself. Um, she jumped right on the back, and um, my wife has the same problem to, to this day. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it revolutionized my life. It, it changed my life. I was, it's, it, I mean, it's hard for me to exaggerate that I was literally on cloud nine with this thing, and I would you know, be at school daydreaming about, like, I can't wait to get home and ride my scooter. And uh, I was, it was heaven on earth kind of a situation. My life was awesome. I'm, I'm, I've made it to the top. And all of that lasted uh, about two weeks. Um, one day I got home from school, I got on my moped, and I drove down to the end of my street to my best friend's house, Waylon Harris. And um, I pulled up into Waylon's driveway and I honked my little scooter horn. And I waited for Waylon to come outside. And what happened next devastated me. Put yourself in like a, like a classic, like late 80s, early 90s, like teen, preteen movie scene. It was just like that. Like the garage began to, I, I'm facing his garage, you know. And I, I watched the garage slowly begin to open. And as the garage slowly opens, I hear the sound of this engine revving on the inside. And then Waylon comes rolling out of his garage on a brand spanking new Kawasaki dirt bike. And um, in that moment, my heart just sank, right? And I thought to myself, why didn't I ask for a motorcycle? Like, <laughs> I have a moped. 
Uh, my best friend now has a motorcycle. I can't let Mandy find out about this. Um, and no, I can't, like, why did I not? I'm, a moped is clearly like a lame option. Um, and all the time he'd be like, you know, hey, bro, do you want to race? And I'm like, no, I don't want to. You know the answer to that question. <laughs> my moped pegs out at 32 miles an hour going downhill. Like, no, I don't want to race. You want to go ride some trails? Like, no, you got this. You got a dirt bike. No, I don't want to ride some trails. I'm on this plastic thing on wheels. No, I don't want, you know, I don't want to do that. So, um, it was this ongoing kind of thing between me and him all summer long. And so it's, it's, it's now I'm no longer satisfied, right? Like I want a motorcycle, which I finally bought one last spring. (laughs) Uh, so, um, and it doesn't work. So, but, um, it's, it's the, it's, it's the first time I tell you that story because it's the first time in my life. So I really did some thinking this week. Like, when's the first time in my life I remember this happening? This is the first time in my life that I remember noticing this shift in my heart where the satisfaction of something that I really, 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 really desperately wanted began to fade shortly after I got it. Like I went from, I don't know if you understand, you do, because you do this with your own, in your own way. This story plays out in your life in different ways. For me, it was in sixth grade, it was the moped. I went from daydreaming about this thing, fantasizing about it, loving it, practically worshiping it, to despising it, to being dissatisfied with it, to not wanting anything to do with it and wanting something more the moment I saw my buddy's motorcycle. And I wish I could stand up here and say this is the last time something like that's happened to me, but in reality, the moped is kind of a summary problem that's plagued me my entire life. And the reason I share this with you is because it's a problem that's plaguing all of us, and it's the problem Paul brings us into at the end of Philippians chapter 4. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can get at this problem and describe it. You could call this problem jealousy. I'm jealous of my friend, right? You could call this problem envy. I'm, I'm envious because he has something I don't have. You could call this problem being ungrateful like just unthankful for what I have. You could call this problem greed. You could call this problem being a spoiled brat. And all of those things were and still are, in many degrees, true about me. But the Bible has a different word for this problem. And it's the word that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 4. And it's a word that encompasses all those other realities. And it's a word that really summarizes the ache of dissatisfaction that so many of us carry. And the word is discontentment. I went in a moment from being content with what I had to all of a sudden being discontent with what I have and what I don't have. And so, by the way, that's the definition of discontentment. If we were to define it, I don't think you'll find a better definition than Johnny Erickson taught us. Uh, I, I love Johnny or Joni Erickson taught us. She's one of my favorite writers. Here's her definition of discontentment. Quote, Discontentment is simply having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. Now, I'm going to challenge you to write that down and keep it somewhere in front of you where you'll see it. Put it on the dashboard, put it on the mirror, put it on the fridge, put it in your Bible, put it somewhere. Discontentment is simply having what you don't want and it's wanting what you don't have. Now, with your eyes on the screen, keep that on the screen for a moment, please. Look at the definition with me. Looking at that definition, based on that definition, how many of you can relate to my moped experience? Would you be willing to raise your hands? Okay. All of you, the rest of you either are just zoned out or you're lying. Okay. So, um, 
If you were to take an honest assessment of your life and your, your desires and your heart, even now in this moment, where do you find yourself right now in your current situation having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have? We see this. All it takes is a, a little bit of self-reflection. And you'll see this popping up in your life all over the place. I don't think I'm the only one. A few weeks ago, um, we, we talked about how there's a story in our culture that says the more you have, the happier you'll be, right? So you'll finally be where you want to be. You'll finally reach the good life with just a little more, a little more money in your paycheck, a little more cushion in the bank account, a little more wiggle room in your retirement fund, a little more status and achievements to your name, a few more gadgets and toys to play with, a few more things from Target and Amazon, whatever your thing is. We, we, we talked about how there's a story that says, hey, you can be content, you just need a little more. You just like... You just need to get to the place of more. And when you get to that place of more, then you'll be content. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, and it bears repeating, all the research plus our own human experience tells a different story. More stuff never equals more satisfaction. Here's what happens. Just when you think you're about to cross the finish line into satisfaction, the goalpost always moves. Always and it may it may not move immediately. It may take it a couple of weeks. But the moment I saw my friend's motorcycle, boom, goalpost moves. I go from being content and happy, you know, Adam, sixth grade Adam, to being discontent and angry about my life. Goalpost moves. So how do you how do you get to the place of how do you get to the place of contentment then? Well, consumerism has one story, one gospel that it preaches. Consumerism says, well, you, yeah, the target moves, but you just got to keep chasing the moving target, right? So just keep chasing the moving goalpost, and then you know if you could just get a little more, then you'll get there. But the problem is that when you get there again, the goalpost moves, and now you're on a never-ending hamster wheel. So if I had a whiteboard, I would actually draw a circle on it because what this is, is it's actually, there's another word, there's another word for what consumerism does to us when it puts us on the hamster wheel and it's called the addiction cycle. And, it, and you don't just, it's not just like, um, people that are, that are like abusing cocaine and whiskey that are on it. All of us are on it. So the addiction cycle starts with, if you draw a circle and you, you write number one on top and you write, I ache, I want, I long, I desire. There's some kind of ache and emptiness and want that I'm trying to numb and, and like soothe and satisfy. So you move down to the wing of the circle and you write number two. So what do I do? My coping strategy? I consume. Maybe it is whiskey. Maybe it is cocaine. Maybe it's just more stuff in the inbox. Like in the, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the cart, like online shopping cart. Maybe it's, you know, a few more swipes of the car. Maybe it's a few more hits of work. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like, you know, logging more hours in the gym, I, I, counting calories. I don't know what it is for you, but it's something. So we, we, our coping strategy is we consume. Well, then you get to the bottom of the circle and you write number three and you write, it works in quotation marks because it does. It gives you a little shot of dopamine. Endorphins go like, oh yeah, I don't feel the ache anymore. I'm numb for a moment. Like, yeah, binging on my favorite documentary series with some popcorn and Netflix kind of works until it stops working, right? So then you get over to the other side, the other wing of the circle, and you're right, number four, the satisfaction begins to wear off. 
And usually your circumstances get worse as the addiction gets worse. Bank account gets lower. Maybe you struggle to hold a job. Maybe, you know, you start damaging relationships. So now, now guess what? You're back at the top of the circle. Oh, God, there's an ache. My life hurts. I want more than this. I've got desires I'm trying to fulfill. What's going on? So what do you do? Well, you cope and you consume. Well, what happens? Well, it kind of works until it kind of doesn't. And then the satisfaction wears off. Now you're back where you started. Ugh, empty, ache, I want. So what do you do? I could literally stand up here for 45 minutes and do this, by the way. And so now the stuff that is leaving us dissatisfied is the same stuff we're using to try to get satisfied. That's called the hook. Now you're addicted. So what's happening with us is consumerism has got most of us so burned out and exhausted from the dadgum hamster wheel that we're running on, and we live with this chronic dissatisfaction. As one British poet uh, so eloquently put it, I can't get no satisfaction, right? And that's the song most of us are singing. To quote another Brit, here's another British writer. Her name is Ruth Whitman. And she wrote a book on American culture called America the Anxious, how our pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. Here's what she says. Whitman says, as a Brit living in the United States, the sheer back-breaking intensity of the American approach to finding happiness can sometimes feel alien. She's like, as a British person, I don't understand this, what I'm experiencing in American culture. It's bonkers. And then she goes on to explain it. People in America spend more time, more emotional energy and money in the quest for contentment than any other nation on earth. The systematic packaging and selling of happiness is an industry worth billions and billions, but despite all of the effort and the money they're pumping into the endeavor, Americans consistently rank as some of the least content people in the developed world. Check this out. One recent survey even placed the day-to-day happiness of the American people two places behind the citizens of Rwanda. Anybody ever been to Rwanda? What's more, according to the World Health Organization, Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet, with nearly a third of people in this country likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So what is going wrong, Whitman asks. Why isn't all this effort paying off? Why can't people, especially Americans, seem to find any real happiness and contentment? And that is the question most of us are left asking. In light of that question, I want to ask another question that I want to have us wrestle with together this morning. And the question is this. As disciples of Jesus, is there a practice from the life of Jesus that helps me get off the hamster wheel and that opens me up to experiencing the true and lasting satisfaction and contentment for my soul that I'm longing for? The answer is yes. There is a practice from the life of Jesus, and Paul writes his letter at the end of Philippians to introduce us to it. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. This is a huge, bold promise and a bold statement. Paul says, I have learned, look at this on the screen, the secret to being content. Now, anytime somebody tells you they have a big, juicy secret, what do you do? Like, you kind of lean in, right? I'll... I kind of want in on that. Even if part of you knows that that feels kind of sleazy, like I kind of want to know what the secret is. 
Paul's actually inviting you to do that this morning. Paul says, I have a secret that I want to share with you that's going to change your life. Why don't you lean in and let's talk about it? So that's what I want to do this morning. If you're with me, you guys with me? Let's talk about this secret to being content. And I want to start in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this, quote, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Let's stop right there for a second. Let me bring you into the context. Does anybody know where Paul's at when he's writing this? He's in prison. Paul has has landed himself in jail because he's been running around telling people that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that has landed him in jail. So the way the Roman prison system works is you're on your own for food and drink and all your provisions. So you have to rely, hopefully, on friends and family outside of the jail, if you have any friends and family. You're you're relying on other people to take care of you, um, or else you're going to starve to death. So here's Paul, alone, broke, no money, no food, and then all of a sudden we learn in Philippians that Epaphroditus shows up. The Philippians have sent Epaphroditus 800 miles, 800 miles from Philippi to Rome to bring Paul gifts and supplies so that he doesn't starve, and that saves his life. So Paul does what any of us would would do, I hope. At the end of his letter, he takes some time just to say to the Philippian church, thank you to to Epaphroditus. Thank you for risking your life because I praise the Lord for you guys. I rejoice in the Lord because of you guys, because of your generosity. I'm alive. I get to keep sharing Jesus with people. So thank you for all your support. That's what's going on in, in verse 10. But now look, notice this, notice the shift. Notice what happens next in verse 11. Paul says, quote, now I'm not saying that because I'm in need of anything. So to paraphrase, Paul's saying, thank you for your money and all your support. I don't want to be rude, so I'd want to thank you for all your money and all your support. But now let me be clear. I actually don't need your money and your support. At the end of the day, he's saying, I really don't need or want for anything. And the careful reader comes to this and says, wait, hold the phone, like press pause for a second. Wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean that you're not in need? You're in prison. You got no money, no food. You're all alone. There's a great chance you're going to die if somebody doesn't get you out. He eventually does die. We know from church history. The same emperor that has him in prison goes on to kill him later. So how, how can you say that you don't need anything when you actually don't even, you don't have anything? Well, I think that's a fair question. I think it's a great question. I think Paul anticipates that question, so he answers it for you in the second half of verse 11. Keep reading. Check this out. Don't miss this. I'm saying this because, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, quote, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I would underline, circle, highlight, whatever, that phrase, whatever the circumstances. Paul goes on, says it again in the next verse, verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, even the one he currently finds himself in. Listen to me. Paul's not being a tough guy here and denying his pain. This ain't tough guy. Which I love, by the way, in counseling, working with tough guys. 
because there's, there's they're, they're usually the most tender. Okay? Paul's not a tough guy here denying his pain. Paul's not some annoying optimist who's reframing everything and casting it in a positive light. Well, of course I'm in prison, but I mean, it's better than what I deserve, right? Like he's, he's not that guy. Paul, you read Paul's letters. He's very honest always. He's very acutely aware and feels deeply his physical and emotional and spiritual and psycho-spiritual pain. But what Paul's saying here is that even in those situations, in the good and in the bad, I've learned the secret to being content. Now, this is a huge statement for anybody to make, but it's especially a big statement for Paul to make. Because if you know Paul's story, um, this guy found himself in a pickle like more than one, once or twice. He, he got himself in some pretty tough situations to be content in. So really, Paul, content in all situations... When my fellow Israelites and all my friends and family abandoned me and turned on me, that broke my heart. But even in that situation, Paul would say, I, yeah, I was content. Multiple times when, when beaten and left for dead, you know, you learn in Acts that they, uh, and in 1 Corinthians, they whipped him five times with the cat of nine tails, that thing that they beat Jesus with, that thing that like wraps around your flesh and is designed to tear the flesh off. Yeah, five different times Paul got beaten and flogged with that thing. Okay, well, that hurt. That was brutal. But in those situations, yeah, I was content. Three times when I was shipwrecked, this dude was, this dude, this dude got shipwrecked three different times. Fool me once. Shame on you. However it goes, like I'm not getting back in the water. I'm just not. So, um, three times when I found myself hanging onto a piece of driftwood in the middle of the ocean, those were some pretty desperate times. But even in those situations, I was content. All the times I've been arrested and thrown into prison with nothing but the clothes on my back. Yeah, here's what I'm, here's what Paul's saying. In whatever, he's being inclusive. In any and every situation, I've learned the secret to being content. Now, do you know how discontent I am when the internet is running slowly at my house? Like, God forbid Netflix. My wife and I were trying to watch a show the other night and it was a little bit pixelated and had to buffer a couple times. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Turned it off. Just threw a fit. I was like, I can't, I cannot handle this, right? Did I not? Um, God forbid that my Zoom call lag or like freeze because my internet connection is unstable. So I mean, I, I don't know about you, but the moment you introduce any kind of suffering or disruptions in my life, I can throw a fit and become very, very discontent. And what blows my mind, like I want the secret. Oh my God, what is, the, what is this guy's secret? Because what blows my mind is that even when things are really, really dark and desperate, Paul says, yeah, I have, I have peace with what I have and I'm at peace with, with, with what I don't have. I'm at peace with what I have even when it's just a piece of driftwood that I'm hanging onto in the middle of the ocean. I've learned to be content with that. Blows my mind. Paul says, I can be content even in the darkest of times. And notice this. Don't miss this because he, he continues. Don't miss this in verse 12. Paul says, it's not just that I've learned to be content when things are really bad. I've also learned to be content when things are really good. Look at verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, but also know what it is to have plenty of stuff. Plenty in the... Plenty in the pantry and plenty in the, you know, fridge and plenty in the bank account. And 
plenty in my pockets. And I kind of know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, um, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Okay, this is getting into some fascinating stuff about like the way the human heart works. So stay with me. Everybody with me? Here's what you got to know about Paul. We just listed off some bad stuff that this dude faced, but his life wasn't all bad. Paul had some pretty gravy type like situations and privileges that a lot of other people didn't have in the ancient world. Um, he was highly educated, first of all, which would have cost a lot of money, which means he probably came from a wealthy family. We know this. Highly educated. He was very skilled as a rabbi and a tent maker, which we also know in that world. Um, you did pretty well. Okay, this is a this is an above middle class type of living that Paul would have had pre Jesus. Okay, he was also like the best of the best among his peers. You know, won all the awards, all the accolades. Like he talks about this in Philippians. We're going to talk about this in a moment. Like he kind of was kind of the top of the line and the status chain. He was also a Roman citizen, right? Roman citizen, which means he had all kinds of rights and privileges that a lot of other people didn't have. And so, yeah, Paul says, you know, I've, I've had to learn how to be content in like the darkest of times, which is mostly his life after Jesus. Jesus told him, I'm going to show you. When Jesus converted Paul, he said, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And from that point on, it, it was few and far between, like when, when Paul's life was plenty. It was mostly want and need, which he says, actually, I was content with. I had to learn how to be content when I had nothing. I had to learn how to be content when I had everything, Paul says. I had to learn how to be content when I was poor. I learned how to be content when I was rich, Paul says. Let's put on our careful reading hats again. And let's look at this text as a careful reader, an astute reader. When you come to this, maybe it's just me, I'm going, why in the world would this dude have to learn how to be content when he was rich? Because... If you're anything like me, I mean, like, I mean, I read this and I'm like, man, that was impressive when you said that you were content with just the driftwood. But like, when, when, when it, it's easy, it should be easy for you to be content whenever you have plenty, right? Because if I, if I'm rich, then I'm, then I'm, I'm going to be able to be content because I can go out and just kind of get whatever it is that I want. So it, there's, there's this, there's this thing in us that thinks like, man, the contentment would be easier the more I have. Let me reframe this in two ways. So first, and I know I said this a few weeks ago, but we've all slept since then. So we, we need to reframe the way we think about being wealthy. Um, I'm not just talking about like Jeff Bezos. Type. When, when the Bible talks about being wealthy and rich, it's not talking about Bill Gates and these kind of guys. You, you got to realize that when you, when you look at the world standards, if you own a car, more than one uh, outfit, like more than one uh, pair of shoes, you own a phone, any one of those things, or combination of those things, you're in the top one to three, one to three percent of the entire world's wealth. So um, we're, I'm guessing that's probably most of us in here. Secondly, you got to realize that according to all the research, it's actually harder to be content the, the, with with more the more you have than with the less you have or don't have. You know, we, we tend to think about, like, the more you have, the more you'll be content, right? The reality is, again, the goalpost always moves. Always moves. So I know we've said this before, but listen, write this down. What, ha- what that means is what happens is the more you have, 
This is why Paul had to learn how to be content when he was wealthy. Because the, he knows how the human heart works. The more you have, it's harder to be content because the more you have, the more you want. And sociologists have a name for this. They call it the prosperity paradox. Paradox because the more you consume and acquire, the more you want. And it's a truth that cuts across the human condition. This is what Paul wants us to see. This is how the human heart works. You've heard us quote it before, but I think of that iconic line from John D. Rockefeller, the great oil tycoon, when he was asked by a journalist, how much money is enough, John? When is enough enough? You know, he, he's, he would be worth an estimated $200 billion today. And so when he was asked by a journalist, how much is enough? He paused, he considered the question and reflected, and then he answered, quote, just a little bit more. So no matter how much money you make or things you acquire or success you get after, you'll always want just a little bit more. More is never enough because when you finally get to the place of more, the goalpost moves and now you're stuck in the hamster wheel. And it's a strategy that's destined to fail. It's a strategy that's destined to destroy you. And, and it is destroying us. So all the, this, this is actually not a secret. Um, you know, you don't even need Jesus to come to this conclusion that, that I'm coming to. Like all, all the research, secular or Christian, all the research is getting at this from social scientists on the effects of consumerism on the human soul. Like what it's doing to our quality of life what it's doing to our emotional, physical, mental health. Um, a recent study that came out of Baylor said this. One scholar said, quote, Upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. Exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. Exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. This is, this is the hamster wheel. To go back even further, um, this is nothing new. The third century church father, Cyprian, who is the bishop of Carthage, he was preaching a sermon um, talking about the dangers of consumerism in the third century, okay? And the, the quest for more, and here's what he said in his sermon, quote, he's talking about like wealthy people, which would be all of us. He says, their property holds them in chains, which shackles their courage and chokes their faith and hampers their judgment, and throttles their souls. If they stored up their treasure in heaven, they would not now have an enemy and a thief within their household. They think of themselves, please don't miss this, they think of themselves as owners, whereas it is they, rather, who are owned. Enslaved as they are to their property, they are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. Let me ask you a rhetorical question just for you to consider. And by the way, I just want you to know, I have been under the blade of this critique all week. So what I'm saying to you, like my toes are like bloodied and stepped on and like I've, I'm with you, man. I've, I do, I, this is a word for Adam. I do not have this figured out. I need desperately to learn this secret, okay, to being content. But, but I want to ask you a question that I've had to ask myself this week. A rhetorical question for you to pray through. Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Do you own your money or does your money own you? 
Do you own your desires? Or do your desires own you? Cyprian is saying, like, look, the, the, the trick is when you get when you when you get on this, when you if this is the way you want to do your life, when you get on this hamster wheel, you are owned by your desires. And the quest for more owns you all day. You're, you're a slave, which is literally the, the word for addiction. You're just, you're, and you're caught here. And what Cyprian, let's take it back further than Cyprian. Let's go all the way back to Jesus. Because Cyprian's just quoting Jesus and all the modern research is just agreeing with Jesus. Shocker. Jesus is right, okay, about everything. He's tell, telling us how life works best and he's always right. When Jesus is teaching through the parable of the sower, he gives this warning. He says, the gospel seeds are sown sparingly or or generously, like generously sown. And the invitation is for everyone to come and experience freedom and life in Christ. But watch out, Jesus says, put it on the screen, lest the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, And the desires for other stuff, the stuff of earth, the stuff of this life, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Man, I just want to experience the abundant life I'm longing for. What's choking that out, I wonder? Could it be, could it be that we've bought into this lie of to be content, I've just got to have more? Here's the point. Paul wants us to see that true satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment is never dependent upon your circumstances. Listen, it's never a situational reality. You can't buy it. You can't attain it. You can't acquire it. It's never a situational, circumstantial thing. In fact, the word Paul uses for content is a Greek word that literally means, quote, to be satisfied with what one has and free from the need of external aid or circumstances. I love that definition. Notice the words satisfied and free. The essence of contentment is that in the core of your being, you are satisfied and you are free. You have this inner peace and sense of freedom that nothing in this world can take from you because it's not based on anything this world can give you. And that's what we all long for, which brings us back to the million-dollar question. Okay, well, then what's the secret? (laughs) Like, spill the beans, Paul. Tell us what your secret is. Where can I find this true and lasting contentment in a culture of consumerism that keeps making empty promises? What's the secret? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13. Here's what he says. Look at the text. The secret that empowers me to be content in any and every situation, no matter what happens in this life, is this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. There's the secret. There's the secret. I want you to look at the phrase through him. Okay, the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. So um, let me me give you the answer. Who's the him that Paul's talking about? Can we all say it together? Who's the him Paul's talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Paul says the secret has a name. You want to know the secret? It's not a product. It's not a platform. It's not a strategy. It's not, it's a person. The secret is a person and his name is Jesus. Paul saying my secret to being content is I've learned that I've learned how to live with nothing because when I have Jesus, I actually have everything. I have everything. 
I have a joy and a treasure that, that nothing in this world can take away from me. You know, that's what this verse means. Okay, time out. Real talk. There's a lot that this verse doesn't mean. Okay, this verse gets taken out of context a lot. I think we know that. Sometimes we use this in the arena of sports where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me means I can beat the other team. When what happens when you have Christians on the other team claiming the same verse? I'm not sure that works, right? Or I can put up with this really annoying person through him who gives me strength. Or I can crush my numbers at work and attain my goals through him who gives me strength. Listen, you can use the verse that way with no shame. It, it, it works, okay? It kind of, the, the only reason you can do anything is because Jesus is your power and your strength and puts breath in your lungs and gives you the ability to do whatever you're going to do. But on a much deeper, deeper, deeper level, the, in context, the truth that Paul's getting at is even better. He's saying, listen, if you have Christ, you have everything which means nothing can be taken away from you. Nothing can be added to or taken from your joy. And and you you go back earlier in chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul lists, he gives you his whole list of all his accomplishments. I was the most zealous of all the other Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I come from the right lineage and tribe and, you know, prestigious family lineage. And I've got money and wealth and fame. He's super famous in his world. Um, and, and, you know, this highly educated and all this stuff. And you know what he says? I met Jesus and I considered all that other gain as loss. And I considered all that other stuff, the stuff of earth, which is good stuff. But he says, I considered all that stuff dung, dung, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So what, what Paul wants us to see here, don't miss this, is that the source of real contentment is found in Jesus. You want to know why? Because God designed and created your heart for Jesus, and that means your heart beats for Jesus. God designed and created your heart for Jesus, which means your heart is reaching for Jesus. God designed and created your heart for Jesus, which means your heart is thirsting after, crying for, longing for Jesus, and nothing else is compatible with it. And we've done studies on human desire. You want to know what we found out? Like across the board, unanimous agreement is that human desire is infinite. There is no bottom to it. It never runs out. Now, why is human desire infinite? And why can't I find anything else in this world that can satisfy it? Well, C.S. Lewis would say, if I can't find anything in this world to satisfy me, then it stands to reason I was made for another world. What I'm trying to say is, your heart has an infinite thirst that demands an infinite drink. And nothing else will do. Everything else will keep you addicted on the hamster wheel, but it ain't going to quench the thirst. I promise we're getting close to landing the plane, but I'm going to read to you a quote from Melissa Kruger. Melissa is an author and an editor at the Gospel Coalition. She says what I've been trying to say in the last half hour. Better, I should have just read her quote, and let's take communion and sing another song and go home. Here's what she says. Kruger, Kruger was asked, what is the biggest obstacle to contentment? That was the direct question. Here's her quote. Quote, the biggest obstacle to contentment is that we often set our hope in terms or in items or in people that were never actually intended to bear the weight of that hope. The reality for us as humans is that we have an eternal thirst 
that can only be satisfied by an eternal God. And often we look for our satisfaction in lesser things. I like to think of someone who is standing before the ocean and she is desperately thirsty. Right now in your mind's eye, I want you to go to, you're on the beach. Maybe you just finished running a 5K or I don't know, something, but it's hot. And you are panting like a dog and you are thirsty and you're staring at this big, beautiful ocean. Can you see that in your mind's eye? Listen to what Kruger says. This, this girl standing before the ocean and she's desperately thirsty, she takes a big glass and reaches down and picks up from the ocean water to drink. And all of us watching this would immediately say, No! Don't, don't drink from that. I mean, don't get me wrong, the ocean is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. You can swim in it. You can play in it. You can look at it. You can enjoy it. But here's the thing about the ocean. It was never meant to sustain life. If she drinks of it, she will actually grow thirstier still. In fact, if she keeps drinking, she'll die. So it is with the things of this world. When we chase after the things of this world, even good things, things that were meant for our enjoyment, but we set our hope in them rather than the God who created all of those things, we are destined for discontentment and ultimately death. We need daily to be going to Christ, finding our satisfaction in Him, drinking from the living water. Then and only then our souls will find the contentment that we so long for. I love that she describes our desire as thirst. The Bible talks about it the same way. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you and desire you. My soul thirsts for you. Look at this. My body longs and aches for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water because your love is better than life. What's that great line from the Beatles? Can't buy me love. You want to know what you're really longing for? I'm telling you, I'm telling you guys, listen to me. Every swipe of the card, every illicit sexual experience, every time you're looking at you know, naked bodies on a screen or what, whatever it is, you want to know what you're looking for at the bottom of it all? We're, we're longing for God's love. Every emotional wound you carry is all centered around like abandonment or separation from the presence of love or not, not getting the love that you need and that you long for. I mean, we were created for the presence of God's love and that's not something you can buy. It's, it's what your heart is thirsty for. And it's an infinite thing. I love how Kruger goes on and says brilliantly, the root of our discontentment is that we try to satisfy our longing for God's love and quench that thirst with lesser things, even when it's good things. All those good things, marriage, family, career, all good things, just like the ocean is a good thing. It's just don't, don't attach to those things to save you because they'll actually damn you and kill you. And none of those things can bear up under the weight of an infinite human desire, which demands an infinite drink. Here's the big takeaway. Listen to me and we're done. The secret's out. Okay? Secret, the cat's out of the bag. 
If you want to find real and lasting contentment and the satisfaction of your deepest desires, you turn away from all those other things and you look to Jesus and you embrace Jesus and the riches of his love for you and your heart will have everything that it longs for and was made for. Now, let me get inside your head and we're done. If you're anything like me, you're going, okay, Adam, I I buy that. I believe Jesus can save me and satisfy me. I'm a disciple of Jesus, been following him for years, but I still struggle with contentment. I still find myself looking to other things. Well, so do I. That's why Paul says you have to learn this. Did you notice that? Twice in this passage, Paul says he had to learn this secret, which means um, this is not something that you can just read about or buy a self-help book about or listen to a sermon about and then go out and have it mastered. You, you actually have to learn this. If you want to learn Spanish or learn how to cook or learn piano, what do you do? What do you do? Practice. So what are some things that we can do to help reinforce our faith in Jesus, to keep our hearts set on Jesus where we can feel this satisfaction from his love? What are some things we can do to help us practice and cultivate a life of contentment as disciples of Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's five things to close real quick, and this brings us into our practice for the week. First, and first, this is really important, name your discontentment. I would love for you guys to try this on today. Dan Siegel has this phrase that he's coined called name it to claim it. Or, sorry, name it to tame it. Um, what he's getting at is transforming our discontentment or our problem starts with naming like the root of it. So w- what is it that you currently have that you don't want in your life? What is it that you currently don't have that you do want in your life? Name it. Write it down. Second, Develop the practice of gratitude. So rather than dwelling on what you don't have, practice daily giving thanks to God for what you do have. You can take two or three minutes in the morning, do a meditation, and write out 24 things in the last 24 hours that you're grateful for. Share with other people, like here's two or three things I'm grateful for. Something our family does, we do a lot of things like uh, broken and bonkers at my house, but one thing that we do uh, every time we sit down at the dinner table, and my wife can attest to this, is I'll ask our family to go around and just share one thing that you're grateful for today. One thing. Each each person goes around and says one thing. Usually it turns into like three or four or five things. Everybody's sharing like, I'm grateful for this. And then we'll say, well, let's just give thanks to God for that. Thank you, Jesus, for all these things that you've done for us and for, for loving us. So, I mean, it's hard to be discontent whenever you are grateful Number three, let go of comparison. Now, this one I struggle with. It's been said that comparison is the thief of joy, and that's true. Listen, there will always be a motorcycle to your moped, always. So what we do is we we look on Instagram and Facebook and all this other stuff, or we see somebody walking in their new outfit or new clothes or new kicks or whatever, and we always compare the worst of ourselves and our life with what we perceive to be the best in them. And then we play this game where we compare what we do or don't have with what they do or don't have. And when we justify ourselves of like, do I feel good about myself based on my comparison with this other person? So I push them down and prop myself up. Or do I feel shamed and like stupid like an idiot because this person has more than me or they're better than me? Or like, look, look, this, this will rob you of joy and contentment. So we've, every time you notice that in your life, you've got to repent, nip that in the bud and repent of that. Um, and you've got to rest in the grace of God, and you've got to get out of this headspace of comparison and competition with other people. Fourth, limit how much you own and how much you spend. 
Um, the spiritual director, Jan Johnson, says, uh, as life becomes more outwardly simple, it becomes more inwardly rich. Just look at the last line of that quote there. As life becomes more outwardly simple, it becomes more in- inwardly rich. So here's the process. Listen, you're going to get this in your missional communities. Uh, it's going to take you more than a week to do this. So hang on. But I, I want to invite you to go through each room in your home and sort all your stuff into five categories. Okay? Giveaway pile, sell pile, throw away or recycle pile, a weight pile. You're going to need a weight pile because you've got attachments to stuff. So you're going to be like, if I want to give this up or not, I might, what if I could use this again someday? Um, and then fifth is a keep pile. Start with the easy rooms first, save the hard stuff and sentimental stuff for last. And the idea is that you only want to keep what is, what is a resource and what, what gives meaning and value to your life as a follower of Jesus. And so then in light of that, you hold each item in your hand and you ask some basic questions. Okay, does this bring me joy? Do I need this? Is this useful or beautiful? Does this aid me or hinder me in my quest to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did and live for his kingdom? And so the idea is you want to you go around and you want to sort things into your five piles based on those questions. And then, you know, Jesus might be leading you to get rid of some stuff or sell some stuff or keep some stuff or whatever. Lastly, if you want to cultivate a life of contentment is practice generosity. So it's not enough just to limit how much we own or how much we spend. The next step that's even more important is to give out of what we have, to give out of what we have. A few guiding principles on generosity, okay? Start with where you are, not with where you should be. If you're out of work right now, if you're in debt, whatever, just start small. No shame, no guilt, no pressure. Start with where you are, not with where you should be. Next, as a principle, is give your first fruits to God. This is huge. Ancient agrarian followers of Jesus would give the first fruits of their harvest to God as a way of um, trusting in his providence and expressing gratitude for his provision. And instead of waiting until the end of the season to see if they had anything left over. So for us today, that means as soon as we get our paycheck, we give whatever we've determined in our heart to give rather than waiting to the end of the month to see if there's anything left. Next, as a, as a principle of generosity is you've got to pray and determine what your first fruits will be. For some people, that's a certain percentage. It's a certain amount. Like what? That's between you and Jesus. How much is God leading you to tithe? to the local church? How much is he leading you to give to another person or a cause that you care about? How much is he leading you to give to the poor? You decide. And as you practice generosity, I just want you to watch what happens in your heart. There's a real freedom that will begin to emerge in an actual happiness, true happiness. Because you'll realize Jesus is right once again when he says, it is blessed, more blessed, which is literally the word happy. It is happier to give than it is to receive. Five rhythms of developing contentment. Name your discontentment, practice gratitude, let go of comparison, limit yourself, practice generosity. All of these practices or habits or ways of shaping your heart to, to keep it focused and remember what it's beating for, who it's beating for. These are a way of recalibrating your heart and pointing it in the right direction toward what it's really thirsty for which is God himself. Jesus says this in John chapter 4. He's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, Look, if you drink this water, you're going to get thirsty again. 
But he says, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And then he goes on and says this a few chapters later in John chapter 7. Let anyone, that's all of us guys, anybody, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus, to satisfy and quench our thirst, became thirsty himself on the cross. Did he not? Longing, aching, desiring, thirsting, literally pouring himself out, blood, sweat, and tears to the point of death on a Roman cross. Jesus pours out his life so that we can be filled up and forever satisfied with his love. That's what we celebrate every week at communion. The juice represents his body, or the juice represents his blood shed. Um, the, the bread represents his body broken so that we can be put back together and made whole. And if you're in this room and you're a disciple of Jesus and you, you believe that, then we invite you to celebrate and, and partake in this meal with us. And if you're in this room and you wouldn't say that's where you are, I'm so glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to journey, ask your questions, be wherever you are on this journey. And, and um, if you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus or put your hope in him or whatever, I would love to talk with you after the service. Robert's here, Bill's here, any, any, any of our staff, anybody that you came with would love to have that conversation with you. So um, I'm going to invite the, van, the band to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. And we're just going to meditate for a moment on um, this truth that we've heard this morning. So would you bow your heads with me? Yeah, Father, I just pray right now that um, you would remove any obstacles that would keep us from, you know, just um, responding in faith and obedience to your word, to your pursuit of us. I pray truly for the Crossing Church that we'd be known as a people like the people that we work alongside and live with and do life with. Our neighbors would say about us, like, what is, what are these, what is these people's secret? What is the secret sauce that they like, that they have so much, that they're so resilient, that they're able to grieve but like not lose hope and be sorrowful yet always rejoicing and like what is it they have that, that I don't have? And I just pray that you would put Jesus on display in a really powerful way through uh, the contentment of the crossing. Like help us to learn this secret and embody this. Come and do what only you can do now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.